Thank you, worship team. That's some powerful truth uh, we just sang together. What a joy uh, to get together as the body of Christ. And um, looking forward to the text this morning to interact more with it and, and the beauty of Scripture and what it speaks and how it speaks to you and me. And uh, I'm so glad to be a part of the family of God for sure. We hope that um, we know that throughout in the church there's many needs, oftentimes, many hurts. Many ways we can pray for each other, and I, I really hope you'll take advantage to communicate those needs um, via the connection card or contact us in the office, and uh, we can get that uh, the word out. There's a lot of praying prayer warriors in our congregation uh, who would be glad to lift you up in prayer, and and so I, I share this request not not because it's necessarily more important or anything, but I, it'd be good to give you as a church an update um, on what's going on and. In, in our life, especially with my health, and um, we go down uh, um, tomorrow and have surgery Tuesday, and um, it looks like a, at least a half a lung's coming out. Uh, it's one way to get rid of the tumor, um, and hopefully they don't find anything else, and so we don't really know um, the extent of what the surgery will look like other than some basics of it, and so we thank you for praying. We cover your prayers, and I might be out of circulation for a little bit, but you'll certainly never be out of my mind. Uh, you're precious to us, and I and, uh, just want to share that with you. And so thank you again for your thoughts and, and your prayers, and we just look forward to sharing how God works and how he's going to be glorified in all this. Um, let's read uh, Ephesians 4. Uh, what a great passage written to the body, you and me, the body of Christ. I'm going to read the first 13 verses, and then we're going to pray and ask God to teach us. Paul writes, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. For there's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He ascended, what does this mean, except that he also had descended in the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we know that within these verses, certainly within all the Bible, there is rich treasure, treasure we long to discover. Your truths, Lord, are precious to us. Help us understand them by your Spirit. Help us to understand what, what you care about, what you care deeply about this morning, what you call us to care deeply for. And so, Lord, we thank you that you want to teach us some things, and we, we open our hearts, yield our minds to you, that they would be a habitation of your Holy Spirit. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. This morning, um, I want to talk about something that 
it seems a little rare as we look around, our, our, especially our nation, our world. It seems we live in a world that it's, you can't even really discuss differences because the unity around breaks down. We have a world that's afraid of differences. It, there's, it seems like there's no foundation stable enough, whether it be a nation or a government, to stand on without it crumbling. We're hard-pressed to see unified groups, from city councils to boards to government agencies to Senate, Congress, it's breaking down all around us. And I speak today, though, and I'm proud to be a part of a church that I believe works hard to preserve unity. We're not perfect body by any means, but you're to be affirmed of how I see you work through differences, seeking forgiveness, speaking encouragement, and I know at times it's not easy. So I speak today by way of caution, by way of biblical perspective, by way of encouragement. I'm so grateful I don't speak to a church that's fractured. And so this kind of comes as a way of encouragement. I think that's where Paul's letter was meant, to encourage them to preserve the unity, continue to always work on it, to not take it for granted. And so the best time to speak about unity is when there is unity. It helps us treasure and and recognize how precious it is to work for it and guard it. You see, when people come to faith in Jesus Christ, trusting him alone for salvation, they become part of something much bigger than just a passport out of hell. God's placed you and I into a larger community, a new society called the church. The church is a business organization. It's not a government agency. It's not a military establishment. It's called a household. It's called a family. And unity is strongly emphasized in the New Testament. And we're to pursue that without compromising the truth of the gospel. But we live very much in an individualistic society. It's easy to lose sight that we are bonded together in a relationship of unity. And yet God takes this so seriously that the Bible warns to watch out for those who would cause division in the church, for those who would come and disrupt that unity. God's serious about this because it could harm that unity. A Christian who isn't interested in helping keep the unity of spirit is kind of like a child in a family, I got to thinking, who wants food, who wants clothing, who wants shelter, and all the privileges of the family while refusing to help out. Most families don't work that way, and certainly God's family doesn't. Each of us have a personal responsibility. And so this comes speaking to all of us as believers in our role in the church. Now, to understand the context of Ephesians 4, you need to read the first three verses. Because unity has, is bounded and, and, and finds its essence in truth. That's what we're saying. We believe in Christ. He is our cornerstone. That's the foundation of truth. That's why there's foundations crumbling all around us, is they're not based on truth. That which we unify around is truth. That's the first three chapters. So if you miss that, then chapter four begins to take on a new light if you understand chapters one through three. Our unity is founded on truth. Let's understand this concept of unity. Ephesians four, as we read through it, I think you picked up on a couple words repeated, unity and one. 
It's not by accident Paul used those words. He was trying to communicate to you and I the unity of the church. It's the Holy Spirit's assignment, you could say, in ministry. But again, up front, truth and righteousness take front seat to unity. Yet this unity is so crucial to the outworking of God's plan, it's his design that we would grow and mature within that context of community that's founded on truth. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 with me. I'm picking up in the middle of a chapter. Paul talks about in this chapter the use of spiritual gifts, the, the, the correct outworking of them, and the significance of each person in the body. But I want you to notice in verse 12 through 13 what he picks up. For he says, For even as the body is one, and yet it has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And this word unity means oneness. That's different from sameness. One of the reasons marriages break down is the people involved, the spouses, want to remain two. They're not interested in oneness. But that's unity. And God's definition is oneness. It's not sameness. Over the centuries, the church has suffered from misguided efforts to make all people to conform to be one certain type of person. And we've lost some of what it means when God paints a mosaic, a beautiful picture of differences brought together by the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful picture that God is painting. Multicolored is a word we read in the Bible about that. And that's what God is doing. That's what His Spirit is doing as He takes individual and their uniqueness as the people made in God's image and He brings them together as one body. It's exciting and thrilling. But it is also challenging at times, if we're honest. But make no mistake, true unity is finding oneness of purpose and commitment. It's moving toward a common goal of the mission we're called to. Despite our differences, unity requires that you and I all head in the same direction. If we were to continue reading through 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, 21, Paul uses an illustration of a body. Reminded of the truth there that the body's various parts are designed to work together as a harmonious whole to accomplish the body's tasks. If you've ever broken an arm or leg, you know how bodies weaken and hindered when one part isn't functioning properly. And yet Paul says in this chapter, we need to recognize the individuality, but then he talks about how that individuality plays itself out into a togetherness, into a oneness, into a weeness of the body. And it's a big job. I mean, the fact that unity is a reality brought about by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean we can't mess it up. The problem is not the Spirit, it's flawed human beings. Now remember, in the early church, God's work was so great, without prejudice, that he brought Jews and Gentiles who typically hated and mistrusted each other, and he brought them into one body. Now, we can't fully appreciate how much disdain there was from the Jews to the Gentiles. Jews considered them dirty dogs in some cases. I mean, just 
really looked down on them. Gentiles looked down on the Jews and kind of thinking them as holier than thou and, and, and actually kind of just a reverse way, but they didn't like each other at all. The hostilities were real. But into this mess came the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit blended Jews and Gentiles together into one body. It was a beautiful picture, beautiful thing that we get to see in Scripture. But the problem is when the Spirit is quenched through pride and prejudice, the result is disunity and a crippling of Christ's body. Unity is so significant that just hours before Jesus went to the cross, Scripture gives us an insight into what he prayed for. Now, think about this. What would be most important in someone's life probably would reflect it in their prayer right before the end of their life, right? Kind of the cream that rises to the top type thing. In John 17, let's see what he prays for. That's what's so significant that's on his mind and heart near the end of his life here on earth. John 17, 11, midst of Jesus' prayer, he says, I'm... And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I, came, I come to thee, Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I mean, that's perfect unity of the Godhead. And look at Jesus' praise, that they would be one to the degree of the perfect harmony of the Godhead. It look, it's right there, that's the prayer. It's not that they would just get along. He doesn't just pray that, you know, that they tip their hat to each other. He prays for something so profound, beyond all the differences, beyond all the opinions, that we would be one, that there would be a deep unity among us. And he's not done. Verse 20 through 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his disciples, but for those who believe in me through their word. That would be you guys, us. He's praying for us right now that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou did send me, and did love me even as thou didst love me. This prayer shows really, I think, how much is at stake in the church's unity. God's name, his glory, his love, our evangelism is tied to unity. It's that significant. You see, our bond in Christ is a testimony to a watching world that the Lord and the faith we preach is true. Our unity is so significant, it communicates to the reality of Christ within us, of how he could work in such a way that he could glue us together as one family. Let me state it another way, maybe in not a good light. If we're functioning in conflict and disunity, rather than unity, God will limit his work in our lives. In other words, if we have time to be blessed and not be a blessing, if we're selfish saints who want things from God but don't want to mess with being a functioning member of the local church, or if we're causing disruption in the church by our attitudes and tongues, 
then we're wasting our time to get on our knees and ask God to do something for us. If we don't want to hang out with God's children, what makes us think that the Father will support our rebellion? He's that concerned about our unity. Matter of fact, the good principles in 1 Peter 3, 7, well, the scripture addresses husbands. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with your wives in a unified way because if you don't, your prayers will be hindered. Whoa, there's a caution. God's saying, listen, if you don't seek to live in a unified way with your spouse, don't get on your knees and ask me for anything. You need to get back to what I'm telling you to do. You need to pursue unity in your marriage, and we're called to pursue unity not only in our marriage but in the church. But let's be honest, there's attack on unity. If you were, our, if you were the enemy, and you know unity was the key to our evangelism, unity was a key to glorifying God, if unity was a key to answered prayer, effective evangelism, what would you do? Wouldn't you try to sow disunity? I mean, wouldn't you try to mess with what God is doing? And sometimes we forget hell is coming against the unity of the church. Hell's not just throwing a little bullet every now and then. Satan knows if I can somehow cause disunity, I'll cause the name of Christ to be dishonored. I'll somehow affect any evangelistic efforts if I can just disow or just sow disunity. Consider the consequences of disunity. When we allow Satan to get a foothold, it dishonors the name of Christ. It discourages the servants of Christ. It disorganizes the church of Christ. It becomes chaos. It hinders the work of Christ. It certainly confuses those outside of Christ. And it disappoints and grieves the Holy Spirit. No good thing comes when there's disunity. I want you to consider these two scenarios, these two groups. Consider group one. Some in this group are not oriented to health. These rogue members of this group are out of control. They're doing their own thing. And they multiply, and they begin to hinder the whole group. If that's not bad enough, these rogue members join together to form a larger rogue group, and they begin to affect the healthy members all around them. It's a sad scenario. Consider the second group. Some in this group seek to grow a following with the intent of bullying others in the group. They don't listen to the way the body communicates with each other. They're bully members. And so they push away the other members so they can dominate. Neither of us would want to be a part of either of those groups, that's for sure. But it might interest you to know the first group I described is actually describing in a simple way cancer. What is cancer? It's rogue cells that are bent on doing their own thing. They're abnormal cells. And they just continue to divide out. And these rogue cells, as they divide out of control, they clump together. They're doing their own thing. And when these rogue cells clump together, they form tumors. And this growing tumor becomes this lump of cancer cells that can destroy normal cells and affect the health of a body. And how true is that in the body of Christ? When there's rogue members who are out of control doing their own thing, they can cause real damage to the body. That's why God gives a warning to watch out for those who cause divisions. 
Romans 16, 7, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, Titus 3, 10, and 11 are some examples. There's warnings given to even take a witness to a divisive person. And if a divisive person won't repent, won't get in line with the rest of the body, they're to be rejected and cut off. Why? Because they're a cancer to the body. They create disunity. They affect the healthy members in an unhealthy way. That second group aren't so much rogue members as they're bully members. That second group isn't cancer. It's a blood cancer, though. It's called leukemia. And so you've got rogue cells doing their own thing. Then you've got bully cells that seek to dominate. And in leukemia, these bully cells are white blood cells, which crowd out red blood cells and platelets, causes an unhealthy situation as they seek to dominate. And those who really want control and who want to dominate in the body and aren't concerned about the members create an unhealthy dynamic. And so whether it's rogue or bully members, they're destructive to the unity of the body and certainly destructive to the unity of the church. They attack unity. And we must work hard to, pre- to preserve unity by addressing these issues and these attitudes as soon as possible. We need to be concerned, like Jesus was, about unity in the church. But sometimes we forget the power of unity. Acts chapter 2, I'm just reading, I read this a couple weeks ago, but I want us to see once again the power of when God's people are unified. We forget this. We read in Acts 2.42, and they, believers, were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one, in, with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And look at, the, look at kind of the consequences, the result of all that. The Lord was adding to their number day by day of those who were being saved. God not only showed up in their midst, but he showed up to those who were outside the assembly as they looked in at those who were in Christ. It was powerful witness. You see, early followers modeled for you and I to cease from being consumed by differences and to be consumed by Christ, the head of our church. What a perfect model for you and I. And as we read, read through Acts, we have another example. This would be a good one to mark down read a, uh, some other time. Acts 12, 3 through 9 Peter is arrested by Herod because there were those around Herod who were offended by Peter's preaching of Jesus Christ. They kind of got Herod's ear and said, hey, do something with this guy, would you? So Herod tosses him in jail. But something neat happens. We read about in verse 12. Many of the brethren were gathered together and they were praying for Peter. God heard the prayer of the saints who came together and he sent an angel to bail Peter out. This is a collective power of the church at work. And the key was their unity. It was a unified prayer. And unified prayer is powerful. Consider when we pray in Jesus' name. It's a collective focus. We're making a commitment 
corporately to live under his headship, to bow and surrender to his authority. This power is not a stated formula, but it's in the person of Jesus Christ. We are truly praying in Jesus' name when we're unified in our obedience as we operate under his authority. There's unity around his sovereign purposes and responding in harmony to his leading in his word. I mean, consider it this way. Let's say you had a group with heads bowed and they began to pray about something and some wanted to do this, a couple others over here praying for something different, others are saying, no, let's do this, and others are bowing their heads saying, "Uh, no, I'd rather do this, and some are saying, well, I'd rather do what Jesus wants to do, and in Jesus' name, amen. But what if you had another group saying, we surrender together to your leading God, to your headship, to what you would want in the body, in Jesus' name. You tell me which was a powerful prayer. Is it not the unified one? Is it not the one where we set aside opinions and differences and say, together, I join with my brothers and sisters, I link arms and say, Lord, whatever you want, together we're going to follow that. No matter what that looks like, even if it's different than we thought and even if it's unexpected, we bow and surrender to your authority and we can pray that in Jesus' name and that gets God's attention. We must serve. We must pray with Christ actively in charge and unify around his glory being our highest goal. I love Philippians 1.27 and chapter 2. Just a couple of verses. They're so, so powerful. Philippians 1.27. Paul says to this church, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, in a a reading, if someone had never read Philippians, they might read that and say, oh, I wonder what individual he's writing to. He's writing to a church. And yet you look at that oneness that he longs to see. And then if you get down to chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He's praying for unity because there's power. Power in unity. But there's a functioning and outworking of what this unity looks like and how we live it out. Now remember, it's the Holy Spirit who places every believer into this dynamic relationship with other people in the body of Christ. Therefore, it's our job to guard and to preserve the unity that God has already given us. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, be diligent to preserve the unity of the bond of peace. Another translation, I think, actually even gives us a little more insight. It says, make every effort to preserve the unity of a bond of peace. Not a effort, not one effort, not a couple efforts, every effort you can make to preserve that which we're supposed to be part of, you have unified group. Paul wants the Ephesians to understand their corporate identity, that they're one in Christ and to work hard to preserve this unity. Now, if God is this serious about the church's unity, I wonder what we could call it when a believer decides this doesn't apply to him or her and they blow off fellowship with God's people. I don't know about you, I I call it sin. 
Because the church is not optional. You and I are to be diligent to build up that which Christ has made us a part of. The church is to function together, sharing, praying, problem solving, communicating, communing, serving, growing, worshiping, learning, together for his glory. If we were to keep reading in chapter 4, which we did a little bit earlier, it highlights the importance of God's plan and that every believer has been given a grace gift by God. And each of those gifts contributes to strengthen this body, to strengthen this unity. And this emphasis is this whole body, as it functions together, it brings about maturity. It brings about growth. And it just reminds me that if you want to mature as a Christian, if you want to grow as a Christian, don't think you can do it outside of the church. It's the unity of church and growing and all the differences that God brings us together as one which provides really this dynamic, this atmosphere in which you and I mature and grow. And so for growth to occur, it requires each part doing his or her part. The context for maturity is unity. The context for health is unity. If the church is to be everything God wants it to be, then every part of Christ's body has to get on his program. I like the way 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says it. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member's honored, all the members rejoice with it. No matter where you are today, if you're hurting or rejoicing, you're joined together in a vital, living, organic unity that is indispensable to the church's proper functioning. A healthy church is so because it's unified. And when it builds itself up, and love, we continue to build unity. Well, how do we practice this? What's a, what's a practical way you and I can practice this? Once again, I'm very grateful this morning I speak to a unified body. You have no idea how grateful I am to be, be a part of that. We're unified. It's a desire. Last night we met as leaders, and it was so neat to see the unity of that group that met together as we talked about the future and where God was leading us, and the unity in that room was neat and unmistakable. And so I'm so grateful, you have no idea, that I speak to a unified group. So look around. It's your family. We're family. How do we practice unity in our family? Well, there's two things I present. I'm sure there's more, but I think these two would give us enough to work on. One, address actions and attitudes that are obstacles to unity. And I'm going to list some. Non-acceptance. Non-participation. Gossip. Slander. Own agendas. Unforgiveness. And I know maybe some of you have been hurt deeply by a brother or sister in Christ. And you may find it really hard to move beyond that. But I want to encourage you to get out of that prison called bitterness and unforgiveness and to forgive and step back in to the beauty of unity. And you might need to go to your brother or sister and realize you've offended them and you might need to go to them. It's worth it. It's worth it. It not only affects your relationship with them, it affects the whole body. Those hard things, I know they're hard, but believe me, they're worth it. They're worth every step we take. So let's all of us address 
actions and attitudes that are obstacles to unity. I suggest we be a church that rises up, that makes every effort to build up unity of the church, and in doing, we become a powerful witness of a unified body. The second thing, and I think we need to do it every now and then, maybe as a couple, you do it every time, every year of your anniversary, you remember your vows. The second thing I think we need to do more often than just now, but here and now before God, make a commitment to pursue unity. You see, it's a choice. Every effort you make, every action of love, every act of humility and encouragement, you're showing your commitment to build unity. It's a choice. And really, it's a commitment to each other. So it says, you know what, I'm going to reconciliation. I'm going to choose to forgive. I'm going to choose to bear with each other. I'm going to choose to not be a rogue or bully member. I'm going to choose to speak the truth in love. It's more than attendance. It's participation. It's contribution. It's using your gifts. They're intentional actions to build up the body because together we can do corporately what we could never do individually. God's called us to be a part of something far bigger than ourselves. His church. And it's a beautiful thing when his church works together. One of the things I love is this great creation called five-hour stew. It's incredible. I mean, you chunk up some good beef, drop them in there, and you cut up, oh, I don't know, 80 vegetables. Just, just keep cutting them and throw them in. Just throw them in. You got to potatoes. And then you, you put that that pan in the oven, I don't know, for five hours. I guess that's why it's called five-hour stew. I'm going on a limb here. Um, but, but you let it cook, and you let all the juices mix together. And these individual ingredients begin to mix together. In a couple hours, there's a smell. There's an odor that literally pulls you into this kitchen. And you're like, I want some of that. Likewise is the church. God takes individual members. He brings them all together. And even with all individual uniqueness, he mixes us together and makes this beautiful, beautiful body that emits an odor, a fragrance that pulls a watching world towards what Christ is doing in our midst. It's a beautiful thing as we become that which pulls a watching world to Christ. So let's be this family of God. Let's be the people of God by the power of God for the glory of God according to the word of God. Let's do it together. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for each and every person in this room. Lord, for those who are in the faith, who believe what we've sung about earlier, please help each of us to understand you've brought us in to a vital living organism called the church. We're not an organization. We're a body, a family. And Lord, we're instructed this morning from Ephesians that we're to work hard to preserve its unity. 
Lord, that means maybe different things for each of us. Maybe for some, they've been on the sidelines way too long. Well, they may have showed up on Sunday morning, but that's about it. Their involvement has been limited, and they haven't gotten involved in other people's lives, and they haven't been looking to use their gifts or maybe encourage other people. This morning, maybe you're giving them that holy nudge. Lord, for others, they may have been hurt. It's becoming a huge obstacle for them. I pray you'd lead them to reconciliation. I pray that you bring them towards humility. And Lord, help them to see the value of unity. And Lord, it is my prayer that you continue in our body as you mix us together, that we would be a fragrant offering to you first and a fresh aroma to a watching world of the reality of you, Jesus, in our midst. We love you. We thank you for saving us, redeeming us. We thank you for bringing us to part of something called the family of God. Help us to love each other well, to pursue unity to such a degree that you're glorified, that you're praised, and your name would be honored throughout Cocado, Dassel, and the surrounding areas. And it's in your precious name, Jesus, we all pray. Amen.